Welcome to Calvary Chapel in the City, Sunday morning service. So, there was one announcement there which may have seemed a little bit too brief, and that was next Sunday, we are in the Fenway Room. What is the Fenway Room? We rent two conference centers every Sunday morning, one for the kids, one for us. Next Sunday, we're where the kids are. The kids are up on the fifth floor. Now, this is the first time that the hotel has, has done this uh, in 12 years, and uh, they felt um, really awful about it. And I do find it interesting that, um, you know, I'm preaching week after week after week. You know, when you're mistreated, you return it with a blessing. Uh, and so... <clears throat> Having been in the corporate world for many, many years, I can imagine if something like this happened in the corporate world. I mean, you would be hearing screaming from that corner office uh, that would not stop for half an hour. But, you know, it's time to practice what we preach on Sunday morning and be a blessing uh, to the hotel. They signed a contract with someone else for Sunday morning. It was a junior person who was new to the hotel they didn't realize what they were doing, and so we're going to be nice and cozy next Sunday morning. Uh, that's, the conference room is right next to the, it's not Fenway Park, okay? It's, um, uh, don't show up there at, uh, uh, at gate A. It's, um, it's uh, right near the elevators. It's a 30-second commute. It, it will reduce your commute from the parking lot by 30 seconds, Okay, we're looking at the, the positive side. And, uh, and so it, it'll, it'll be, you know, it's a blessing to be able to bless the hotel. And, and, and we, were, uh, we were very gracious with them. We have a ro- wonderful relationship, by the way, uh, with the hotel, which we're very, very thankful for. And so, uh, Pastor Scott, um, I just walked 30 yards and, oh, I didn't lose your notes. So three important things next Sunday morning, the 9.30 prayer. If you've never been out to 9.30 prayer, uh, some folks are praying every morning at 9.30. They cover the whole day in prayer. God bless you if you show up to that. I hope that you would consider doing that. But that prayer, normally in the Fenway, is going to be in the food court. The kids, again, will be on the fifth floor. Uh, The nursing mothers... We believe they're looking right there. Uh, uh, there's the camera with the nursing mothers. Right there. No, right there. You see in front of that pillar? Everybody wave in the front. Wave to the nursing mothers. Um, we believe we have a room for you next week. <laughs> we're not sure. <laughs> so we're working on that. Um, but that's, uh, that is next week. And... Uh, Bola also mentioned the sign-up for the men's retreat. Men's retreat is a big, big deal at our church. It's a big part of of the culture, what the Lord has done over the years in our church. And the sign-up begins today, and the sign-up is only three weeks. And the sign-up next week, the table is going to be crammed in between a million people. You probably won't even see it. And so uh, uh, $153.00 for two nights and all your meals, and the speaker, my former pastor, still is a pastor today, once a pastor, always a pastor, and, and it's Robert Fountain from uh, Miami Beach. He will be the speaker. Men, please come. You know, we have, a, uh, I spoke last week or the week before, we have that which is in us, the same thing as it's that sin of Cain. Cain was what? The Bible says he was a fugitive and a vagabond, just like being by himself. That's like me. The idea of spending a weekend with a bunch of sweaty men, I'm sorry, that does not appeal to me. Uh, it, you know, uh, uh, however, when I first came to Boston and uh, we were down in, at the church in Rockland and they talked about men's retreat, I just by faith went out. A fabulous time. It is every year. Uh, please, men, sign up for that. It's, um, it's uh, going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. And uh, Bola also mentioned that this Thursday, I'm taking the van to 
Fitchburg to a church uh, up there, our sister church, a Calvary Chapel affiliate in Fitchburg. We have been on a project for over five years to bring FM radio to Boston. Many people who move to Boston are shocked that there is no FM Christian radio station here. Uh, once you're here, it sort of doesn't surprise you. It's sort of the nature of the spiritual environment here. But uh, there has, this has been a long-term project. We are getting really close to the finish line. But the Lord wants to be brought in every step of the way. We don't want to take it for granted. And so uh, we are getting really close. If you'd like to join me, that's... Um, that's on Thursday. Just you can uh, email the church and just let me know that you're coming. If you're coming, love to have you join uh, me on the ride up and back. We are going through First Peter, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're in chapter three. Please rise for the reading of God's word. We are in verse. 18. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. <clears throat> Anyone need a Bible? We have a couple over here, a few over here, Bibles. Man, Christina, you're going to run out of those Bibles. Oh, here, here you go, Rick. Uh, a few Bibles here, and then we have one over there. We like not only to hear the Word of God, we like to have it right in front of our eyes. Something happens to us when we read the Word of God. Verse 17, 1 Peter chapter 3 says this, For it is better... <clears throat> if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. What on earth does that mean? We're going to talk about it. In which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for gathering here uh, this morning. You led us here, Lord. We believe that. And we believe you led us here because you love us. You want to speak to us. You don't want us to leave the same. I pray that I would not be a hindrance to that happening. Please do that work this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 17, we see that the, this, uh, this theme won't go away that we've been in for the last four weeks. He says, verse 17, this is the Apostle Peter speaking, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, to suffer for doing good, to suffer for doing good, to suffer for doing good. Twice in chapters two and three of this letter, he uses, he actually uses the, the words, you were called to this. To what? To do good and suffer. Meaning, if you, even though you are doing good, but, but actually worse, many times because you are doing good, because you are doing good, as a follower of Jesus, living out your faith, you will be mistreated. You were called to this, says Peter. Our flesh. Everyone know what that means? It's the churchy word. Our natural man. Our natural instinct, if you will. Doesn't want to hear that. To do good and suffer. No. We don't like that. We recoil. Our flesh recoils. But you know something? 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. All Scripture is God-breathed. 
all scripture is God breathed, it says. Sean, can you just adjust that a little? It looks like the left side is being cut off over there. All scripture is God breathed, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit. All scripture is a product of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows our flesh goes the Holy Spirit knows that. The Holy Spirit uh, knows that uh, when we read a verse like verse 17, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good. Uh, it knows that we want to just read it once and we want to quickly go on to the, those other promises of God, those other promises. The, uh, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord that he will give you the desire of your heart. Those other promises of God. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope in the future. Those promises we just need to hear once and man, they go down deep. They go down deep. But not 1 Peter 2.21 and, and chapter 3, verse 9, which are also promises, it says, you were called to this. You were called to this. To do good and suffer. We, we, and, and, and so Peter, what he does, he goes right down the list. And, and this is why, you know, you're thinking, uh, well, Steve, are you not going to stop talking about this? Well, it's not my fault. It's the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter uh, go, starts in chapter 2. He goes right down the list. Starts with the mayor, the police, the IRS, the school board, the Democratic president, the Republican president. To this, you were called to do good even if you're mistreated. And sometimes because you're doing good, you're following Jesus, you will be mistreated. Uh, verse 18 goes to, to, to your work. To this you were called to do good and suffer. First Peter 3, verse 1, in your family, to this you were called to do good and suffer. Verse 8 says, even in the church, many, are people, many people are, are shocked three or four years in the, in the faith that if they're following Jesus, it's going to cause them to suffer within the body of Christ. They start getting persecuted by other Christians for living out their faith. Don't be surprised at that. The Bible teaches that that happens. Peter, are you going to stop here? No. In verses 15 and 16 and 17 of this chapter, he says, with everyone else, not just the mayor, the city, the police, the school board, the president, the, 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 the boss, the family, other Christians. But with everyone else, you are called to do good and suffer. Meaning, even though you're doing good, and many times because you're doing good, because you're following Jesus, you will be mistreated. To this you were called. So what is God's mind for all of this? What's the heart of God behind all of this? What's his purpose? It's right here in verse 18. Next verse. For or because Christ also suffered once for sins that just the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. That, by the way, is the entire gospel in one verse. Why, Lord, why is it that we were called to do good and suffer, to, to call to, that, that because we follow you, we will be mistreated. That's the normal Christian life. If you're living out your Christian life, you will be mistreated. Jesus says, beware if all men speak well of you. He said that. He said, because of my name, all will hate you, Matthew 24. He says, that's what Jesus says. Why? Because, verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Every time you suffer for doing good, 
and return the suffering, the mistreatment for a blessing. You are drawing people to Christ in you. And if you've been here for the last few Sunday mornings, you, again, you may be saying, Steve, you're repeating yourself. You are repeating yourself. No, the Lord is repeating himself. Listen to me. Very important. God loves the people in your life. He loves the people in your life. He loves them. You may not love them. You may be really, really irritated by them. You may hate them, but God loves them. He loves them. And, and, and the people in your life, they need the Lord. They need him. They, they don't know it, but they desperately need them. They, the, the people in your work, your family, your community, everywhere else, they need the Lord. And you are the only lens, or you may be the only lens, through which they get a picture of the Lord. The only lens they're ever going to see. They're ne- they're, they may never see any of the other picture of the gospel than you when you're living and the authentic Christian life in which you do good and because you're doing good or even if you're doing good, you suffer and you return it with a blessing. Verse 18 says, because... Christ also suffered. That's the reason that Peter's saying uh, you're called to do it, that just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, that you may bring other people to God by the picture of your life. That's the point here. And I want to break down this, this verse. Verse 18 has the whole gospel here. The whole gospel in one verse. Number one, it says, Christ suffered once for sins. Christ suffered once for sins, is what it says. Hear me out. Sin is the greatest enemy of humankind. Sin is. It's not famine, it's not nuclear war, it's not a pandemic. It's not a flu virus that no one can figure out, um, uh, you know, how to, uh, the inoculation for it. No no, no one can, the vaccine for it. It, That's not the greatest enemy of humankind. It's not false religion. It's not humanism. The greatest enemy of mankind is not Satan. It's sin. Sin. The Bible says that when, thank you, the Bible says that when man or woman embraces sin, there is a certain, complete, devastating, eternal judgment that hangs over that man or woman's life. That's what the Bible says. Sin is your greatest enemy. But verse 18 says, Jesus Christ suffered for that sin in our place. Notice, it says he suffered once. Without Jesus suffering once for sin, we would have to suffer over and over and over and over and over and over and over again for all eternity. But the sacrifice, the death of Jesus, who who the Bible says is fully man, but it also says that he's fully God, who has he's existed from all eternity. Jesus was, is, and forever will be God. His sacrifice was not only good for that one day, Good Friday. It wasn't good for just that one day. The Jews were used to sacrifices good for one day, a lamb that was brought in the morning and the evening, one day. No, it wasn't good for just that one day. It says here um, that he suffered once for sin. He was the eternal sacrifice. he's, He's lived every day. He's the Lamb of God who's existed every day in the past, every day in the future. That sacrifice was good for every day. Jesus, by his suffering, it says he suffered once for sin. By his suffering, his sacrifice, his dead, 
he destroyed our greatest enemy, sin. For Christ also suffered once for sin, verse 18 says. Then it goes on. It says, the just for the unjust. Number one, it's a good thing when you're, when you're studying in your own time to, to outline. It, will, it, will make you, it makes you retain. It makes you understand better. I'm sorry, it may also remind you of your second grade grammar class, but, but, but it's also, there's a reason those second grade teachers do it. They love you. They, they want you to retain. Christ suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust. The good for the bad, the innocent for the guilty, the perfect for the imperfect, the just for the unjust. Jesus teaches himself that the requirements to get into heaven for a man or a woman or a child are pretty high. You know what they are? What was that? Perfection. Perfection. Matthew 5.48 says this, be perfect. This is Jesus speaking. This is not some religious lunatic. If he wasn't God, he would have to be a religious lunatic because he says things like this. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. The Bible says that Jesus lived a perfect life. That is central to our faith. It's central to the word of God. Never compromise on this one. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, Jesus was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Bible says that Jesus so loved the world, he so loved every man and woman and child, he so loved you that he not only died for you, he spent 33 years on earth being tempted every single day. The same way you are, every single day, bearing up under the same temptation that you and I go through, only it was so much worse because the Bible says that Satan himself was assigned to Jesus. Do you realize that Satan, let's get our theology and our Bible knowledge right on Satan. Satan's not the opposite of God. Satan's a created creature. He's a fallen angel. He can't be everywhere at one time. Satan's like hanging out with people today like whoever, Billy Graham and, you know, famous evangelists. You know, let me me bring your opinion of yourself down to earth. He's not hanging out with you, okay, Or, or, or me. Jesus was, had Satan assigned to him. Let me rephrase that. Satan was assigned to Jesus himself. You and I may have have to put up with the temptation stirred up from an entity from the demonic realm. In fact, we are. The Bible's really clear about that. Not Jesus. Hebrew 5.17 says that Jesus' temptation was so powerful. It, it, it says this in Hebrews 5.17. 5.17, it says, In the days of his flesh... When Jesus had offered up prayers and supplication, a supplication is just another word for, for, uh, for prayer, he did so with vehement cries. Now, you guys don't want to hear me acting out vehement. I mean, but it was just intense, the kind of intensity that, that caused his capillaries and his blood vessels to burst so that blood was inside the drops of sweat when he was praying, dropping to the ground. In the days of his flesh, when Jesus had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. This is a picture of Jesus and temptation. And it's not just the Garden of Gethsemane. He did all that for you. So, because 
he wants to have an everlasting relationship with you in heaven. And heaven has never had sin enter into it. There's no sin in heaven. It's that good. It is that good. And he so loves you that he lived a perfect life for you in order to give you full credit, full credit for his perfect life. He wants you to give you that that credit for his perfect life, the just for the unjust, the good for the bad, the innocent for the guilty, the perfect for the imperfect. So have you ever done something that someone else took credit for? I mean a big thing. Anyone? Some big project at work or at school in your family. You spend five hours cleaning up the house. And then you leave. Your mom or dad comes home. Wow, who cleaned the house? Your sister comes up and says, ha, it was me. (laughs) (laughs) You find out about it when you get home. Ever had something like that happen to you? Someone else taking credit for some really big thing that you did. Did you get piping hot mad? The next time something like that happens and you feel the heat coming on, the heat, ooh, it's just descending. It starts right here. Starts Starts going down. Take a deep breath and consider. You've done the same thing with Jesus. Only he did it willingly. He gave you the credit for a perfect life in which he endured temptation through vehement cries and tears to live a perfect life for you. He wanted a life with you in eternity in heaven. Heaven requiring perfection. He credits us with a perfect life. Number three, in order to bring us to God. In order to bring us to God, verse 18 says. It says, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Not in order to bring us to the Super Bowl on location or the World Cup championship. Not, not to do that. Not, not to uh, bring us to a concert of a wildly popular uh, music star. Not in order to bring us to the White House for a personal meeting with the, with the president. To bring us to God. Sometimes we, we need to stake, take a step back and we take God for granted and just think about who he is and that we've been brought to him. Think about the sun. The sun. S-U-N. Is 1.4 million kilometers across. 870,000 miles. That's a big number. So big. And maybe just you mathematics people will know with how to... How to how to take this in, it accounts for 99.9% of the matter in our whole solar system. You could fit one million planet Earths inside the sun. The largest known star, at least in the Milky Way, is VY. You know, you you guys thought astronomers weren't hip. They're hip, man. (laughs) VY. It's located about 5,000 light years from Earth. It was recently calculated to be 1,504 times the size of the sun in which you can fit a million Earths. If you placed VY where the sun currently is, its its surface would extend all the way past Saturn. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. There'd just be... Three planets left, you know, uh, Uranus, Neptune, and that dwarf 
thing, Pluto, whatever they're calling it today. But, but God made that star, that star. If you placed it where the sun is now, it would, be, it, it would extend beyond you know, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, toast. They would be consumed with fire. God made that. Can you imagine? And we are told here that Christ suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. God. The creator of that star and a billion others. Now remember the context in which this letter was wrote by the Apostle Peter. For the first time in history, there was a worldwide persecution, meaning Christians were getting killed for their faith throughout the Roman Empire, the known world at the time. There had been isolated persecutions in regions um, of the world, at the known of the Roman Empire at that time, but this was the first time uh, because it was initiated by the Roman Empire, it was everywhere. You couldn't move away to a place where you weren't going to live under the threat of death. Stephen Neal says in his History of Christian Missions that in the first three centuries when the church was spreading probably faster than it has ever spread, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. And there have been periods of history or regions of the world who have experienced the same thing ever since. Just going right up into more modern times, Cambodia. Missionaries entered Cambodia in the 1920s. They were expelled in 1965. At that time, there were about 600 believers in in 45 years, about 600 believers. Between 1965 and 1975, at a time where it was illegal to be a Christian, it went from 600 to 90,000. Amazing work of God. When the Khmer Rouge took over with Pol Pot in 1975, they unleashed their fury on a whole nation. Almost all of them were killed. 90,000 Christians. China's Protestant community, or its born-again community, its Christian community, had about one million in 1949 when all the missionaries were expelled from the country. Today it has 58 million. And it's, it's very much illegal today. You get thrown in prison today unless you're with one of the national churches. But, but, but the, 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 the movement that has the real life um, is the underground church where you can freely worship God and, 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 and believe the Bible in its fullness. During the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s and 70s, after Chairman Mao declared that all religion was poison, he tried desperately to eradicate Christianity as well as all other religions. But today, and I'm quoting Feng Gang Yang, he's a professor of sociology at Purdue University and author of Religion in China, Survival and Revival under Communist Rule. He says, by my calculation, China is uh, destined to become the, Lord's, uh, the, the largest Christian country in the world very soon. China. Where you may be imprisoned if you embrace the good news of the gospel. You know, I think of the quote from Stephen Neal. Every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his face at the cost of his life. You know, we're told by our missionary friends uh, 
in India, Gospel Frazier, that's like that in parts of India today. Um, if, if, if people know that when they become a Christian, they know that it may cost them their life. And certainly it's like that in places like North Korea and Somalia. In Somalia, they hunt down Christians to kill them, not to jail them, to kill them. Wow. And so, you know, as a pastor, I reflect on these things. And I think, you know, sharing, sharing faith is, is a glorious thing in this country. It's a glorious thing anywhere. But let's face it. It is one of the hardest things to do in the world, right? It's a hard thing to do. I always say to initiate a, con- to start a conversation where you're sharing your faith in Christ, it's like jumping into a, pool, a cold pool. You know you have to do it, cause, uh, but you, you, you just, uh, you hate, but you do it. You know, you just go for it by faith. It's a hard thing to do. Why? Because we live in America. People are paying attention to a lot of other things, to money, the lure of money, to entertainment. I tell you, the power of the music industry and the film industry and the media to draw a man or woman's interest away from God. It's overwhelming. Sexual pleasure, the pleasure brought about by drinking a lot, the pleasure brought about by casual drug use. It's not easy sharing your faith in the United States of America. When the man or woman you're talking to knows they have to forsake all that. What about sharing your faith to a man or woman when they know, when they know that if they accept what you are saying, sooner or later, they will probably die. Forget about imprisonment for a while. They're going to die because that's what it's like. That's what's been reality for Christians, some Christians throughout history in some places today. What possible motivation do these people have? I mean, can, can, can you imagine having to share your faith and live out your Christian life, sharing your faith, faith when the that's what you're facing. What's the motivation for anyone who knows that there's a chance that they're going to die? Why would anyone ever do that? The answer, because they want to meet God. They want to meet God. For Christ also suffered once once for sins, the just for the unjust, too, that he might bring us to God. I'm told that the underlying Greek word there is used uh, uh, to, to bring someone into the presence of a king, or was used to, uh, in, in that context. That is why God, who created ZY, that star, if you place it in the same place where the sun is now, it would extend all the way past Saturn. No more Mercury, no more Venus, no more Earth, no more Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. They want to meet God. They want to meet the one who, met, uh, who, who made all that. Listen, everybody. What is life worth living for if you can't meet God? What is life worth living for if you can't meet him and know him? It's not worth living for. It's not. You know, like many pastors in this country and many people who, many people, many of you in this room who care about the word of God and and care about the body of Christ and care about the church, you, me, we, I got to live with the disturbing truth that many in this country and, and even some in this room, they made a profession of, of faith in Christ and it's just not real. Jesus said, narrow is the door that leads to life. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter into it. And hundreds, thousands have have come forward in churches like this and crusades and 
and Jesus talks about it in the parable of the sower. It's, it's like, you know, it's an emotional thing. It, you know, the seed gets put in the ground, it springs up, but as soon as the temptation comes, it, it dies. It's not real. It was never real. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not all of you who call me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of the Father who is above. And we live with the disturbing truth that there are so many in this country that identify with the church, the born-again church, where there hasn't really been a profession of faith. However, I personally live with the joy, and I know many of you do too, of having witnessed many who have come to faith in Jesus exactly how the men and women have come to Jesus throughout the century who have known that they may die. You know it when you see it. It's a glorious thing to witness Someone coming to the Lord, coming to God in this country. And again, remember the context of Peter. He's talking to people who know they may die. But a salvation experience is no different no matter where you live. Even if you're living in the Disneyland called the United States, you've come to the place where you realize, I've lived 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years And to me, life's not worth living if I can't meet God. And it's a wonderful thing. Romans 6, 8 says this. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. A salvation experience that is real is someone who is coming to the cross to die. It says throughout the New Testament. Jesus says, he who wants to save his life will lose it. He who wants to lose his life for my sake will gain it. The last piece of the gospel is the end of verse 18, where it says Jesus was made alive by the Spirit. He was made alive by the Spirit so that you would not only, ha- uh, get, would not only get the gift of Jesus' death, which paid for the penalty of your sin, but so that you would also have the power to live victorious over sin. Now, until you get your glorified body in heaven, you will still sin. But the Bible says that you have a choice whether to obey it or not. And having the Holy Spirit, which is given to every believer who comes to faith in Christ, you have the power to, to say no. Okay. So I'm going to spend the last five minutes on one of the hardest verses in the Bible. <laughs> I saved it to the very end because I didn't want to. I didn't want you got you guys all to die right in front of my face uh, to today. Uh, it, it says this. So after Jesus was resurrected, what happened? What happened? Um, rather, after Jesus died. What happened between Jesus' death and his resurrection? Here's the answer, right here. Verse 19, after his death, it says, he went, it says, by whom also, he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Now, there's many interpretations of these two verses. Here's what I believe it means. We were recently in the book of Luke, where we read in the book of Luke the story about the rich man and Lazarus. Anyone know what chapter that was? If you do, shout it out. I forget. 
16? Luke chapter 16. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. Two men who died before Jesus' death and resurrection. The Bible, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which was not a parable, it was a real story. It says that uh, the rich man was taken down to Hades. Lazarus was taken up to a place with, to be with, with Abraham, in the bosom of Abraham, it's called. It's, it's, um, Abraham was the father of Jews. He's the father of faith as well, Abraham in the Old Testament. And in that scene, the rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus, who had spent his life at the rich man's gate begging for food. <clears throat> rich man was used to bossing this guy Lazarus around. He says, hey, Abraham, can you send that Lazarus guy uh, down to me with just a, a cup of cold water? He's been doing stuff for me my whole life. <laughs> can send him down now. <clears throat> and Abraham says, you know, I can't do that because there's a chasm. There's a, there's a wall. And no one can come from here to there or for the, from there to, to here. That story is the story of uh, what, what, what's called the, the, the place of rest for the dead or the place of suffering for the dead prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in a nutshell, but before Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, it, there was this waiting place. It's called, in the, uh, it's, it's, it's called the, the Abraham's bosom. There are some references to it uh, in the Old Testament uh, where it's, it's a waiting place. It's a place of comfort or it's a place of of suffering depending upon whether people accepted the promises of God and, and, and believed in Jehovah. And they were waiting for Christ. They were essentially waiting for Christ's return. Uh, or rather, uh, Christ coming to earth to die and be resurrected. This is a reference to that. It says, in between, verse 19 says, in between his death and resurrection, Jesus went down there to tell people what had happened. And it would have been a time of great joy, of course, for everyone who had been waiting. Now, of course, it's a time outside of space. It's a place outside of space and time. So we don't understand. We, we can't fully understand the mystery here. But he's going down to tell them that it happened. What happened? And, and, and including, he, he, he's telling people who were in the chasm with that rich man of, of suffering, who had rejected him. The Bible says, makes it very clear that people who rejected, one day they will know for certain that Jesus is Lord. That's what this is referring to. But you can go back home and read your Bible and read the commentaries, come to your own conclusion. That's what I believe um, this is referring uh, re referring to it, but it, it 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 goes on to refer to Noah and, and, and it says it says here that that some of the people that he was preaching to lived at the time of Noah the Bible says at the time of Noah that every man every one woman the imaginations of their heart were only evil all the time and and Jesus is is telling them uh, what happened and, and and he's revealing himself to them in this place that we we read about in Luke 16 um, during the time of Noah and and it says in the days of Noah the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Let's continue. Verse 21 says, this also is an antitype or a picture which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of flesh, of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God or the pledge of a soul to God or the commitment of a soul to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, so what he's saying here is, is to remember these people, um, th they are in a really difficult place. They're trying to live out their Christian life 
they're being mocked, they're being persecuted. Any of you ever feel in your life, it just feels like sometimes, am I out of my mind? Am I the only, could, could I be right and everyone else be wrong around me? Could that really be the case? Everyone at my work, everyone in my neighborhood, the media, uh, it, it, could, could it really be that, that what the Bible says is true, that I'm right and everyone around me is wrong? Peter's addressing the same thing he, here, and he's, he's telling him, you remember Noah? There's only eight people in the entire world were right at that time. We're following God. Only eight people in the entire world were saved. God takes his holiness really, really seriously. And, and me personally, I, I love just thinking about the, the story of Noah when I'm feeling all alone with my faith in the world. It says for a hundred years, he preached righteousness while people were mocking him. That ark wasn't any, you know, anywhere close to a lake or an ocean. Some people didn't even believe there was, some geologists don't even believe there was expanses of water at the time. They believed there was a tremendous mist above the earth, and that's why life was so long at the time. Um, but, you know, that may sound like crazy stuff, but, but, but the point is, is that he built the ark nowhere near the water. It was mocked. And you can imagine that sometimes he's, he, he's thinking, could, could it really be true that I'm right, I've heard God right, and everyone else in the whole world is wrong? Yes, it was true, and as certain as the flood came, with the same kind of certainty, Jesus is going to come again, the Bible says. He's going to come again. He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, he said in John 14, I'm going to come back and take you to be where I am. And finally, in verse 22, it says, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Meaning, when you have placed your trust in Jesus, the Bible says you are then in the palm of his hand. He says in John Chapter 10, every child, every sheep of his, this is in the palm of his hand, it says that every spiritual power and authority in the whole world is subject to him. That's why he says in John 10, none shall ever be snatched from my hand. It's a place of security, of peace, and rest. What a blessed letter to receive if you're a man or woman, not knowing how long your very life was going to last, that you're, you're in his hands, the hands that, uh, of, the, of, of Jesus Christ who is at the right hand of God and having angels and authorities and powers having, uh, that are subject to him. So we're going to just close out the service now. If, uh, I'm going to ask the worship.